You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. Hi, everyone. Before we get started with today's episode, I just have a few things to cover. These are frightening times for our country, and I'm looking for recommendations. I'm especially interested in learning from artists who are also activists. If you know someone who is finding a way to give back, to work for change, please contact me through the Compass Facebook page or website. I would love to hear their stories and learn more from their efforts. Also, I'll be launching the Compass Podcast Patreon page this week, so keep an eye on our social media accounts for the announcement. Patreon is a way for people who are listeners of the Compass to support its mission. The podcast will always be free, but if you find it valuable in your life as an artist and would like to make an ongoing monthly contribution, you can give $1 a month, $5 a month, whatever you like. I'm looking forward to reimagining and deepening the conversation in the third year of the podcast, so please join me in that space. You'll also have access to bonus content if you choose to become a patron of The Compass. My guest today is Lucy Baker. Lucy is a dancer, teacher, and choreographer. We went to Juilliard together, and she's a magnetic performer and someone who's always taken the initiative in creating her own work, which I really admire. She's based in Seattle these days, so this was recorded over Skype. You can see more of her work at lucybaker.com. That's Lucy with an I-E. I hope you enjoy the 90th episode of The Compass. What do you do to try to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? And what is the dark side for you most often? That's more of the question for me is what, what is the dark side? And in, in reflecting on that, on that t- question you sent me earlier, I was, came to the conclusion that for me, it's sort of a sense of meaninglessness or like purposelessness, mm-hmm. especially in regards to art making in that like, nobody cares, none of this means anything, it's a waste of time and everything that you're sacrificing for it is ridiculous, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, why would you do that? <laughs> That's an easy, uh, easy place to go sometimes. Yeah, so, so for me, that's, that's what I imagine when I hear the term dark side and referring to my art um, is... Because for me, art making is a lot about communication. It's a lot about being with people and, and having a connection, being impactful. And so in, if I feel like there's no no impact no connection then I feel like what why am I why am I doing this (laughs) right and then everything kind of falls apart so to avoid that sense of meaninglessness which is you know sometimes unavoidable or at least how I approach that I'll say that how I approach that sense of meaninglessness kind of varies depending on my state of being I try to reframe it so that it has meaning for me personally so that it's not so much about the affirmation of other people or or the need for other people to understand what I'm doing or like it or be involved with it at all (laughs) (laughs) and try try to make it enough that it's meaningful for me that it impacts my life and um I find it important and that and ha- try to have that be enough yeah that is you know easier said than done 
but it is the biggest and most important step, I think. The mm-hmm. most base, the most basic step. Yeah. But you're right. It is, especially when we're trying to make this our livings and careers, difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Well, you're someone who I've always admired so much because, in my observation. Um, you always take a lot of risks in just making your own work. And that's so inspiring to me. Even those moments where <clears throat> I can feel isolated to be like, well, Lucy's just, she just had an idea and she's going for it. She's not waiting for someone else. <laughs> I should do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, is that something that you feel like you've always been able to take the initiative with? Or has it been kind of later in your career that you've found that? No, I feel like I, w- I always had a tendency to kind of do my own thing. Like, I would just get a wild hair of an idea and just like, okay, this is what's happening. <laughs> and actually, as I've gotten older and I'm looking back on the things that I have done, I'm like, really? <laughs> that was the choice you made? You just went and did those things? <laughs> okay. So... <laughs> It, it seems to be some part of my personality or a habit I have of, um, I'm extremely stubborn. Mm-hmm. So if somebody tells me that I can't do something, then I immediately go out and do it <laughs> to the best of my ability, you know? So, so that's, that's just part of who I am. Um, and I, I just find it interesting to, to, be engaging with things that I don't understand or, or learning and and not knowing what I'm doing is, is something that I value actually <laughs> and and when I feel secure and, and like competent and comfortable then I get kind of bored hmm. so I actively seek out things that challenge me and um, sort of disrupt my patterns of comfort. Do you enjoy the producerial tasks that come along with doing that? You mean like uh, managing projects and fundraising and... How have you kind of figured all of that out and made it not drive you crazy? Um, I don't mind it so much. The, The production aspect, I... I'm, pr- I'm pretty organized. I like organizing things. I like analyzing things and like making them very <laughs> square, you know, <laughs> that I find that satisfying. Um, probably the hardest task in producing my own work as a choreographer, or if I'm producing, um, like teaching workshops or something like that is dealing with fundraising or money. Fundraising is hard because it never ends. Yes. (laughs) No, like, it's not the kind of thing you can, like, mark off your checklist and then it's over. Quote of the night. Yeah. (laughs) Fundraising is hard because it never ends. It never ends. Mm -mm. That's just the fact of it. And and that's what makes it so draining, you know? Like, you can't just get the money and be done with it. You have to constantly be asking and finding new resources and... Uh, petitioning people for help and um, support and deciding why your work is important or why why it should be valued in that way and that can be exhausting because it's just a constant justification of your work and I have 
in the last year or so sort of like taking a break from that I was like you know what I'm gonna go be a student and not <laughs> a be justifying everything I'm doing to people who don't know me and don't really understand what I'm doing but that said the way that I think about it that frames it in a way that sort of feeds me energy rather than drains me of my energy is to think of it as though hey this is a project that I'm really excited about I'm really inspired by and I think it would be exciting for you to hear about it too you know some like beautiful secret that I want to share with someone um rather than like me trying to get something out of you right so I've tried to think of it that way and tried to make it as fun as possible, you know, a collaborative effort with those who are supporting me rather than me constantly giving away my energy. Yeah. What, what do you mean by that, a collaborative effort? Well, I can't make the work unless they help me, right? So my, my input into whether it's a a dance production or a teaching workshop or a dinner party <laughs> they the there's a dialogue there the other party has to show up has to invest their energy also so that has an effect on what's created so they're just as much of a creator as I am in that sense maybe not on the aesthetic or the content per se but definitely in um, how it's manifested yeah no, that's a really smart way to think about it. So you're in Seattle these days, which is where you're from. And you used to be in New York when we knew each other. Well, we still know each other, but when we first met, I mean. And you've been back in Seattle now for how many years? I moved out of New York three years ago. Three years ago. What is Wild. What is the geographic change? How has it affected you and your work? Oh. or your state of mind or everything well moving out of New York was a big transition on a lot of fronts um, the the inspiration for that was a, was a desire to sort of redefine my relationship to my work and my career and, and my, my life generally just sort of what kind of a life did I want to live um, because the freelancing scenario in New York wasn't as well-rounded or sustainable emotionally, financially, artistically, as I wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. So I felt the need to change that. Um, I came back to Seattle because my family is here, and I had been away from them for 10 years. And also because it's a lot closer to wilderness yeah. than <laughs> and that's something I value uh, the company of trees and mountains and oceans and not that New York doesn't have those things and I definitely found my little havens in the city but um, it's just on a different scale and being, being close to nature in that way has been really helpful that said Seattle right now is going through a major transformation the city is exploding uh, with 
with new business, with new people, it's growing at an incredible rate. And so the energy in the city right now is very different from what it was when I grew up there. And they're like tearing down all kinds of buildings. They're throwing up high rises. The traffic is insane. (laughs) You know, there's a number of things going on that are kind of unsettling for me as somebody who grew up here. So I've been encountering that here as well. And, you know, I miss my artist tribe from New York that I developed, you know, people like you and, and others that I got really close with. And another thing I noticed when I left New York was how much I had invested in those relationships. Um, I definitely sort of took them for granted. And, you know, now I realize just how valuable they are. You know, the time you put into those relationships is important. Yeah, well, not just for emotional support as your friends, but also, like, so much of your work is collaborative, and to have those people that if you have an idea, you have collaborators there who are always willing to jump in. Yeah, and who we share similar philosophies about making work, and I can trust, and and the quality of their work I can trust, you know. So, the, and that, that just takes time to build and time to find those people, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little different here, finding new people. I was just sort of, like, changing tack also. Yeah, you were ready for something very different. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was back, let's see, what have I been doing? I spent the first year out of New York traveling quite a bit, and I was trying to get work in Europe, actually, um, which didn't happen. And then I came back to Seattle and worked in Seattle for a year just freelancing and teaching. And then this past year, I was training in expressive arts therapy at the Tamalpa Institute in Marin County in California. How long were you there? I was there for nine months. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I want to hear all about that because I haven't really gotten to talk to you about it. Yeah, it... um, was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and you're in Marin County, which is gorgeous. Also gorgeous, yeah. <laughs> and the the institute was founded by Anna Halpern and her daughter Daria Halpern, and it's at Anna's house. You know, it's on her famous dance deck in the woods, and it was a very different way of working than with dance than I had ever worked before. And it was really interesting. What What is the goal of the training? The So it's expressive arts therapy in there. They've developed a sort of technology around it that they refer to as uh, the life art process. So it's using creative arts practices, specifically dance, uh, creative writing, and drawing or visual art to process life experience and sort of potentially um, heal wounds or transform things in your life uh, using art. Daria is trained as a, as a psychologist, as a therapist, and Anna is the artist, so it's sort of bringing those two worlds together. That's awesome. Yeah. How many, awesome. how many people were studying there with you? Well, they have several different programs, but uh, the group that I completed my training with was about uh, 19 people. Well, and now you're about to go get your master's in dance, 
Or you, yes. are, you already started, you just told me in June. Um, I started my MFA program at the University of Washington this year, and it's a, it's a two-year program, and it focuses on teaching and higher education. But it's also pretty, pretty broad. Um, we're encouraged to go out into the university and sort of see what we see and how that might be related to dance in different ways. So is it more about eventually teaching like dance theory or dance history or something like that other than rather than like the actual physical dance classes? Or is it depends both? depends on the person. Mm -hmm. um, we do do a lot of teaching of technique. We teach dance classes the entire time. Oh, cool. um, graduate students are kind of a big part of the undergrad faculty. So there's a lot of that. <laughs> But the, uh, the master's sort of thesis project is to design and then teach a course. And that could be a dance history course. It could be an anatomy course. It could be, you know, a seminar on pedagogy. It's really quite broad. Have you even begun to think about what that might be yet? I know you're right at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to leave room to be open to what the university has to offer, but... Um, the idea was to sort of link it into the training that I was doing at Tamalpa and pursue this idea of dance within community, within um, social interaction, the fabric of culture, how our bodies um, are living monuments to our lives, our life experience, and how that affects our relationships um, and our, the ways we communicate. Hmm. So that's, that, I mean, that's extremely broad. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but that's what I imagine I would be sort of swimming in. Sounds fascinating. Yeah, you, I think it's exciting. You, <laughs> when did you first um, start enjoying teaching? Because it sounds like you're kind of going down a route right now where that's going to become a more prominent part of your life. Yeah, I started teaching with, with um, ArtReach, which evolved into A-Step, right which you know all about so that was a very particular kind of experience teaching with artists striving to end poverty is collaborative right so you're working with artists of different disciplines and um, your team teaching so you have a lot of um, communal dynamics within the classroom you're working with with kids who are coming from impoverished communities or disadvantaged communities and so the focus is not really on, like, the achievement of mechanistic technique. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where my teaching practice started and has kind of remained there. And also in, in dance land, we're constantly teaching each other movement. So just peer-to-peer. -peer. So having this sort of sense of breaking down movement, what does it mean, how do I translate it to your body, that kind of um, dialogue was, was present throughout my dance training. So watching bodies, understanding movement, being able to break that down, bring it, being able to translate that to another body is really fascinating for me. I, I mean, I love anatomy, I, I love kinesiology, like all of those things are so cool. Um, <laughs> So that's fun for me to like break that down and, and to see somebody's body change. Like this summer, 
at UW, we were, I was assigned to teach Dance 102, which is like an introductory sampler class to the undergrads. And, and most of my students had never been into, been in a dance studio before, had never seen dance, had like no idea what it was. They just signed up for credit, you know, they needed uh-huh. arts credits or whatever it was. And, you know, in the beginning, I'm like a little bit worried for them because... <laughs> They're so uncoordinated, and like, you know, I say right hand, and they move their left foot, and it's just like (laughs) a little mess, but by the end of the two months, they're like completely different people, you know, you can, you can see them taking space in a much more confident way, in a much more dynamic way, Um, they've you can just see the quality of their musculature has changed, their alignment, their skeletal alignment has changed, the way they interact with each other has changed. And that's just, like, extremely exciting for me. <laughs> really, my, my secret goal is to, like, change the world through dance. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could use it right now. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, that's... Facing what we're facing in the political arena, I'm so grateful that I am a dancer and that I have like committed to this path because it makes a lot of sense to me that you know people if they're connected to their bodies they're connected to their humanity Hmm. and there's no better place to do that than in a dance class in my mind because it's marrying you know the physicality with creativity so it's very inspiring and I really enjoy it And I'm, and sort of my curiosity now is how to strengthen that connection between the humanity and the art making, rather than it being sort of esoteric and inaccessible and, you know, alienating. I'm yeah. not interested in that. I mean, I, I find watching professional dancers so inspiring to watch extreme pieces where you're doing things that a normal person could never, ever do. But I think it's, you know, there's two extremes and they're both really valuable. I love that you're drawn to connecting with people who maybe don't have the training and seeing the, the vast change it can make. Because I know, like, when we did the piece together in New York that you put me in, Restless Night, like, and you worked with three non-dancers or, like, limited dance training <laughs> actors and puppeteers, one, it was just such an honor that you would allow us to, like, play as dancers (laughs) but it's just another form of storytelling and then I know the work you did in what became the documentary Enter the Fawn is kind of that from another way as well do you want to talk a little bit about either of those experiences and watching that transformation sorry that's not very specific yeah I mean it's interesting to hear you say that it was an honor to be invited to dance you know I mean you know I loved I love to like dance on a dance like cut a rug on a dance floor but <laughs> whenever dancers allow me to be a part of their world I get very excited right, but how interesting is that you know that that you that there's somehow there's there's a boundary there that requires somebody to invite you into which I find that fascinating because you're you're in your body all the time Right. So Mm -hmm. you could you could dance, you know, air quotes here. You can't see them, but you could dance (laughs) like dancers dance whenever you wanted. Like there's literally nobody standing behind your shoulder being like, 
hey, you can't do that. You have to only move like you usually move or the way other people told you. Like, no, but there's no person doing that. So I just find it really interesting that there is this sort of resistance or boundary or fear or whatever it is that prevents people from connecting to their bodies in this sort of creative, aesthetic way. And I'm, I'm like so curious about investigating that. And what's also funny is that the reason I wanted to work with three actors for that piece was because I wanted to work with people who had experience uh, with, emo with emotional life, with, with the construction of emotional life and, and imaginary life um, for character work. Which is something that I felt I needed you to give me permission to do, you know? So it's like, and of course, like, of course I have an emotional life and an imaginary life all the time. Like, that's not a thing that I don't have, but right. I needed, like, your permission to work on that. So this is another reason why I love collaboration, right? We give each other permission to go into worlds that we may not be able to alone, right? We support each other in this sort right. of, like crossing of boundaries you know this yeah. um we can be we can be nomads uh, together you know which 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 is so it's just so interesting these like we make these rules for ourselves that we can that we can break so easily uh, but it's somehow necessary to have others to support each other to do that so mm -hmm. so i find that interesting and, and yeah and working on that piece was was super fun and I was really struck by how little direction you, you all needed, you know, like I would give just sort of like the hint of an idea and then you would just like fill it out, you know, with, with all kinds of like beautiful choices, you know. And, and that was, that's something that dancers aren't trained to do in Western concert dance. Like we're trained to like learn the moves and then do the moves. And this practice of um, sort of filling the room with your imagination is not something that we practice very often. Of course, that's not true of all styles or of all people or of all schools, but in general, I would say that um, it's not as accessible for most dance artists to work that way. So that was that was really fascinating, and actually, like going to Tamalpa and working in arts therapy was sort of a continuation of that desire to explore the emotional realm and to understand it better, understand the sort of power of that, and also the power of imagination. How you can sort of transform what you're feeling, or or build a story around what you're feel, feeling that frames it in a different way. So, yeah, so they, that was kind of, like, the seed of where I'm still, like, working <laughs> on that material. You know, it's been, like, three, four years, but I'm still, like, working on that idea. Yeah. Which is exciting. Um, and then you mentioned Enter the Fawn. So that was a documentary that was created during um, the process of choreographing a piece called Diagnosis of a Fawn, which was made by a choreographer named Tamar Rogoff. Um, and it was featured an actor with cerebral palsy whose name is Greg Mosgala. He played the character of the fawn. And it, it was sort of a meditation on the meeting of science, medical science, and art, and where healing is in that relationship. 
So again, this is <laughs> where my life has been sort of <laughs> moving towards is this meeting of healing and art. Yeah. And that, that piece was, was an important piece for me in my career. You know, we, we worked on it for several years and toured it. And I later um, worked with Tamara on, on other projects as a company manager and, you know, I'm very close to all the cast members in that, you know, Greg and also the other dancer, Emily Pope Blackman and Dr. Don Kalish, who is <laughs> so sweet and a real live doctor. And I had to <laughs> train him how to do classical partnering. We did an excerpt of Sleeping Beauty, Pas de Deux in that show. And I was in point shoes and in a tutu and the whole thing. And he totally did it. <laughs> And that, that was really interesting, sort of like auditioning doctors. We had to audition doctors for that role. And we, I would work with them a little bit and like teach them a few simple um, partnering phrases. And I could just immediately tell whether or not they had like the sensitivity in their bodies and in their hands to be able to take care of me when I was on point. That's so and, interesting, the way you phrased that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some of them were really available to that and some of them were really not they had just no idea what to do or they approached it in different ways like we were working with a surgeon who really wanted to know exactly how everything was working he wanted me to break it down and like be very explicit about every single movement and then like dr don just was sort of like he would just kind of get in there and he would be <laughs> making a job and then there was another um doctor who was more of a lecturer he was more of a research doctor and it was just like he was totally out to lunch I could have been like halfway across the room and he wouldn't have noticed yeah it's just fascinating since their careers are about the human body yeah but yeah it's a very different way of approaching the body yeah um all right this is all coming together this is all making (laughs) sense There's a through line somewhere I guess and is is the documentary online somewhere that people could see or buy it or um, there's a website, enterthefawn.com. Okay, that so you can look there. Get more information about. There have been screenings across many different platforms since it's so come good. out, but I'm sure you can get a copy online. It's really great. There's also a trailer. You can check it out. And yeah, they also have a this outreach programming that goes along with the documentary. Um, reaching out into the disability community, the medical community, and the dance or arts community. Yeah. yeah. It's, it was a, it's a really great project. Do you have any artistic mentors that you've collected over the years that have really influ- influenced the way you've tried to structure your life as an artist? Like role models for living as an artist? Is that what you mean? Yeah, maybe somebody... I guess it could be uh, just professional goals or somebody who you feel like just the way they deal with their everyday life as a creative person, the energy they have, the way they deal with the stress of it or the difficulty of it is inspiring to you. Hmm. I mean, there's so many people that come to mind and for different reasons, you know? And it's not necessarily that I would want to be like them. It's just that I admire them and what they've been able to build for themselves. I mean, like Tamar, Tamar is a good example. Like she's been making like large scale community based dance theater works for 
decades, you know, <laughs> and that's like incredibly inspiring to me, like just to keep your keep your hat in the ring, you know. Yeah. Her work is is always connected to like an important uh, theme, you know, just sort of life theme. Um, and I appreciate the way how she, she doesn't like compromise the scale of her vision, you know, like for a diagnosis of a fawn, she really wanted to work with a doctor. And, you know, when the first doctor bailed, she went and found another doctor, you know, she just didn't, she doesn't give up when things sort of fall through. Cause I think that's sort of the nature of the beast. Yeah. <laughs> trying to make something like things will always fall through, but something else will always come up. She's made pieces in like giant water tanks in Lincoln Center. She made pieces on like rooftops and gardens of the Lower East Side with like children and the elderly and like everybody in between, you know. She went to um, just all kinds of places. She's made pieces with babies, you know. <laughs> you want to talk about a, like a logistical nightmare? <laughs> Let's put like 12 babies in the piece, you know. So I just... I, I admire that about her and, and also how she's, she's um, really involved her family in her, in her life and her art making. She's very, her family is extremely important to her and hmm. they've all been like in her pieces and things like that. You know? Yeah. So she's one. Is there like any lesson that you've learned over the past couple years that you're really proud of? A lesson that I've learned? Yeah. Or, like, a change that you've made that you're like, oh, I'm so glad I finally did that. <laughs> this works so much better. <laughs> um, I guess what comes to mind when you ask me that is allowing myself to know what I know and to feel what I feel. Because um, there's so much doubt in, in living this life yeah. <laughs> where it living in a profession that is not valued by our culture and, um, is, is, has so many difficulties wrapped up in it. So allowing myself to be the expert of my own experience has been something that I'm really working on, I love <laughs> like that. Tr trying to internalize, yeah. um, and that's been really fruitful to um, take what I'm feeling seriously rather than sort of like, oh, that's just uh, like, I'll get over it, you know? Yeah. Like, no, maybe you won't. And even so, like, pay attention. You know, like, what you're feeling is important. You know, it's like a signpost to an issue that needs addressing. So, because a lot of people will tell me that I'm like, oh, Lucy, you're so sensitive. Like, yeah, that's right, I'm sensitive. <laughs> and that's an asset. Yeah, that's, that's what makes me a great artist. Asset that allows me to, like, learn and grow and, like, figure out what's going on in my world. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely something that isn't valued in our culture. Exactly. And, you know, people say it like it's a, some sort of a weakness, like a bad thing. But um, I've been reframing that for myself as... No, it's not a weakness. It's a, it's an asset. It's a resource. And, uh, yeah, just sort of avoiding letting people sort of tell me what I feel or what I'm experiencing 
like that that doesn't make any sense only I know what I'm feeling and what mm-hmm. I'm experiencing and and allowing myself the time to really identify that and reflect because sometimes it's confusing you know there's just like so many feelings that you're just like I don't even know what's happening <laughs> so it's it's not like a simple task it, it like requires space and time and effort to really sort of like sit down and um contemplate some stuff you know figure out what's going on not even sit down like i don't have to sit down to contemplate <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it involves moving and dancing and and understanding my my world through my body um yeah but yeah, that's that's been something that recently I've been trying to give value to. That's wonderful. Yeah, you gotta know what you know. <laughs> well, I, I mean, this is only because you said the word value, but something else that I was um, really loved that you felt strongly about when we did that piece together was paying your artists. Yeah. And I know that's something that is really important to you. Yes. How have you managed to make that central to your process or to negotiate those moments when um, people are asking you to bend your your principles? <laughs> Either in getting um, paid as an artist or paying others as an artist, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think I have a, a, maybe not so unique, but I imagine unique perspective in that I am a creator and also someone who works for other people as a dancer. So I understand both sides of the equation. And for me, it's extremely important to pay the people I'm asking to dance for me what I, the minimum that I would require from somebody else. Um, that just makes sense to me. <laughs> and also I, I find that it, it really changes the atmosphere in the room. Right. And, Mm-hmm. There's a there's a different sort of sense of respect that's paid to on both sides. Yeah. Um, so that's that's valuable for me. I, I I need to have that respect in the studio when I'm making work. You know, I don't want to feel like beholden to the dancers or like pleading for their acceptance, and they don't want to feel like I'm taking advantage of them. Yeah. So I talk with the dancers at the beginning of a project I tell them this is what I have to offer this is the expectations as far as rehearsals and performances go um are you comfortable with that and so we have a conversation about it and I do it up front and it's very clear and for me as a dancer and especially moving back to Seattle there isn't as much funding here for work and the practice is usually paying dancers a couple hundred dollars for performance but not for rehearsal and for me I, I made sort of a rule for myself that I um, would not work for free <laughs> anymore mm-hmm. like, I'm just not going to do that anymore and when I first got out of school you know you're just trying to get your feet wet I um, would work for performance pay but uh, didn't demand rehearsal pay but now I do but in coming to Seattle I recognize that the culture here is different than in New York and the resources are more limited. And so when a choreographer would approach me and ask me to dance with them, I would start with a conversation about compensation. And I made the offer that if they didn't have 
the money to pay me that we could come up with a barter, some sort of exchange. Hmm. Um, so one of the one of the choreographers that I worked with is an excellent writer, and so she paid me the amount that she could, and whatever she couldn't, she made up for it in hours of editing my grants. You know, so oh, when awesome. I was applying for stuff, uh, she would help me review it and. That was extremely valuable to me. You know, I really needed that help also. Yeah. <laughs> so we, you know, we struck up a bargain where that where we both felt um, our work was being valued. And, you know, how we had a conversation, and it makes the, it, it, it uh, deepens the relationship between the two of us. So no, I think it was so a much better really valuable process. Just to state it up front instead of, becoming resentful about it yeah yeah I'm not into resentment (laughs) but it is it is you know tricky business and you know I've I've had conversations with choreographers where at the end of our negotiations they felt they couldn't um offer me that kind of exchange and so I didn't work with them you know so so I did give up projects because I had made that boundary for myself but at this point in my career that's something that I'm I'm willing to accept and there are choreographers who you know maybe getting paid by them is not so important to me or it's a very small gig that doesn't require a lot of time and energy or you know they're they're like it's a constant negotiation there's not like a set like this is how I will work all the time always no but the important thing as you said is to like start the conversation and to to be honest with myself about my boundaries in that way because I don't want to feel taken advantage of and I have a, my skills are extremely valuable and I've put a lot of effort into that so you know exactly <laughs> that's that's like worth at least having a conversation about and and for me it's also a bit about changing the culture around it a little bit you know if one dancer is having a conversation with a choreographer about it then like maybe that could encourage other dancers too or maybe it'll encourage the choreographer to approach their dancers in a different way it's it's baby steps yeah no i hope i hope it encourages the people listening to think think about the way that they're (laughs) the way that they're working yeah because for the most part when i when i approach choreographers about pay it's not like they're like oh no, we, I can't talk about this. How dare you? This is ridiculous. Nobody's like responding Money doesn't exist. <laughs> Money doesn't exist. How dare you? I mean, it is. It, it can be hard for people to talk about, especially if they don't have the money and they, they really want to make the peace. You yeah, know, I, I understand that, but you got to have the hard conversations sometimes. Yeah. So, and, and for me, as far as making work, I take my budget into consideration when I think about the scale of my project. So if I don't have the money to pay for 20 dancers to rehearse for six months, then I'm not going to make a piece for 20 dancers and rehearse for six months, you know? So I've been working much smaller scale with like, you know, trios and finding ways to find space that's more affordable for rent and like these, these kinds of other things. So my budget is part of my creative practice, which I think is also extremely important to include that in, in the, in the vision, you know, rather than just sort of like, Oh, I have this idea and people will help make it happen regardless of how much it costs. I'm like, 
okay. <laughs> yeah. That's just not how I, how I work. Right. Yeah, that's interesting that it's, um, yeah, kind of finding that balance when you were talking about the woman that you worked with, Tamar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, like, the grand scope of her ideas. But it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the scope of expense. Right. They can still be large ideas and risky ideas without costing an arm and a leg. Right. And when I'm, when, like, when I made a Project Ruin with Carly Eckert, mm-hmm. she and I really wanted to put on the show that we wanted to make, right? And we didn't want to compromise on our vision because of the money. But because we had decided that, we gave ourselves a much longer time scale for fundraising. So instead of like, oh, we're going to get the money in like six months and like pay people no money, <laughs> we're like, okay, we're going to take a year, two years to get the money together and do this the way we, at the level that we want it to be. Yeah. Right? So expanding the time frame of the project made a huge difference right rather than putting the pressure on ourselves to like get the money together in a short amount of time which really isn't possible especially with grant cycles there's just like you can't get the money that fast so but it expanding the time frame sort of gave our gave us um, the ability to achieve what we wanted to achieve so that's kind of what i mean by like including the budget into the into the process of creating the piece like it doesn't necessarily mean you make it for less money it just means that it's part of the equation yeah right and being sensitive to that and time scale is is also important yeah and that's that's another thing with like with Tamar like these projects of hers last several years you know it's not like a a few months and you're done you know and I think a lot of dance artists work that way because it takes so much to invest in the creation of a dance piece like you don't have a script beforehand like a lot of it is invented on the people in the room it's site specific sometimes you know so these that kind of work requires a lot of time and space do you have any advice for artists who may have never um applied for a grant before like resources you found or yeah um read the grant application thoroughly (laughs) (laughs) step number one like like really like every time I would go to a grant writing workshop or if you look up like webinars or whatever there are a lot of resources in 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 that way they're, that's always the first thing they say. They're like, really do your research on the granting organization, one. Like, do they even fund projects like the ones you're talking about? Um, what are their values? What are the things they're interested in? And really, like, catering your writing to that organization specifically. It, that's just a, a huge deal in doing your research for, like, who the audience is for this, for this grant. That's, that's the number one. Read the application <laughs> thoroughly. And Fantastic. also the other thing that I, I definitely learned when working with Tamar was uh, you can call them up. Just call the grant organization, and if you have a question or you're unclear, ask. <laughs> that's what they're there for. They, like, want you to have a successful application. So ask them questions. Work on it well in advance so you have the time to not understand and then ask the question and then gain clarity 
I think that's it's a really great resource that a lot of uh, grant writers, I don't think, or at least people who are writing their own grants don't really know is available. Yeah. So you can just call them up well, or email them. And who knows in the this. course of the conversation what other hints they might give you as to, like, they're really looking for this when they ask that. Exactly. Know? Yeah. If you are having a day where you're kind of going towards the dark side and feeling all those... <laughs> all those feelings, are there any concrete things that you turn to again and again to kind of help you get out of it, like a book or music you listen to or something like that? Um, I'm a big fan of forest bathing. (laughs) (laughs) So spending time with trees is really helpful for me and bodies of water, if Mm -hmm. possible. Um, Walking. So much easier yeah. since you moved back to Seattle. This is yeah, amazing. very accessible. Though I did have Fort Tryon in New York because I was living true. in Washington Heights, which That's is true. a very beautiful park, and there's the Hudson right there, you know. So I wasn't bereft. I had my my things. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that that is often a, a go-to for me. I have been practicing a lot more social dancing lately. I've been. I last night I went zook dancing, for example, what is which that? is a it's a Brazilian partner dance. Oh. Look it up; it's really cool. Dance forms where you make physical contact with somebody else. Yeah, and you can engage with other people and sort of like, I don't know, just sort of change your perspective a little bit. Um, that's been helpful. Anything else? Cartoons. I like cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> what cartoons do you like? I've been watching Avatar, The Last Airbender. Oh, I, I, you know, I've had someone else recommend that, I feel like. I've never seen it. It's real good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, there's two different series. There's Avatar Aang and then Avatar Korra. And I just really enjoy them. Um, I don't know, I like cartoons because usually the characters have, like, really simple, strong story arcs (laughs) like nice little hero's journey story arc going and like strong moral compass you know (laughs) which I appreciate I don't like watching shows where the characters are morally bankrupt and uh kind of evil I'm not interested in that and I'm also avoiding a lot of violence I don't want to see a lot of violence in my visual intake gotcha and then the last question is, have you seen anything recently that you want to recommend? Either something live in Seattle or a movie or hmm. anything. I mean, you just, you just recommended the cartoon. Any, anything else? <laughs> or if you know of any Friends shows that you wish you could see that you want to recommend? Can I tell you about the book I'm reading? Sure. Um, I'm reading The Body Keeps the Score okay. by uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who is a, is a doctor, and it's about uh, trauma and healing and uh, how our stories live in our bodies and sort of the physiology of trauma. Mm. So far, it's very interesting. <laughs> no, that's great. I, that sounds really, really fascinating. I yes. Sitting right over there. Mm. Should be cool. 
Well, Lucy, those are all my questions, unless there's something that I did not ask you that you really want to talk about. Um, I don't know. Just be kind to yourself. <laughs> I, am, I feel like artists are often very harsh on themselves. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to I agree. Remind, remind everyone, just be kind to yourself. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this, Lucy. I really appreciate it. It is my pleasure, Miss Leah Walsh. to the compass podcast i'm leah walsh more episodes are coming soon please look for us on facebook and itunes i'd like to thank the following people for their generosity the compass cover art is by kim miller music by brendan spieth audio assistance from nick choksi and a special thanks to frankie j alvarez see you next time Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.